right? And then you unearth the, tre- the, the treasure chest and, and the, the lock is rusted and you, you smack the lock with the shovel and it breaks off. And as the treasure chest is opening, it's creaking open, what, what look is on the face of the, uh, of, the, of, the young, of the young boy who's gone with you? Right? There is something exciting about this hidden, buried treasure. And I want us to see that this that, that the start of this parable is something that's, that's exciting to us. So I'm, I'm really winding you up here for a chest full of Spanish gold. Right? That, that's, that's, what I, that's what I imagine when I think of a, a hidden buried treasure, so, something like Spanish gold. So let's, let's start then our consideration of the treasure with the prospect of the treasure being, being money, Lo- lots of money. Okay, so we, we understand what money can do. Okay, money can buy lots of things. It can buy lots of material things, luxurious things, entertaining things. But not all treasures in this life are of this sort, right? And, and money can't help us when it comes to certain kinds of treasures, right? So situation, treasure like that of a good friend, m- money's not going to help that, that situation. And treasure like that of a good spouse, no amount of money can buy that kind of treasure. So the people in our lives really are, are far greater than the material things that we have, and I think it's important that we, that we just notice that. I mean, I, we ought to know that already, but let's, let's remind ourselves of that, of that important truth. People in our lives are far greater than the material things that, that we have, the luxurious things that we have, the entertaining things that, that we have. So, so then back to the parable the hidden treasure is in a field. The, the hidden treasure that's in this field is not gold. The, the hidden treasure in this field is a person. And it's not just any person. It's the divine, eternal Son of God, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1.15 and following. <clears throat> so this treasure, he is the creator of all things, and he's the sustainer of all things. He is the supreme treasure in the universe. This is God, God incarnate, the, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And touching on his divine nature, he is omnipresent. He, he, he's everywhere, which means he's, he's everywhere. And it, it, it may come to us to say, well, how can a person who is everywhere be hidden? In, in what way can this person who in his divine nature, is omnipresent. How, how on earth can such a person be hidden? Well, the first, the first question to ask about something that's hidden is, from whom is it hidden? Okay, so when I play hide-and-seek with my kids, I'm hidden from them, but I'm not hidden from myself, and, and I'm not hidden from God. So, so we come to ask, from whom is this, is this treasure hidden? And and the answer, biblically, is that the treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ is hidden from fallen mankind. He's hidden in some way. And 
we, we ask the question, well, how, how so? How is Christ hidden from sinful, fallen mankind? And I'd say that the, the thing to consider here, the passage that speaks on this would, would be Romans 1.18 and following, and I'll read, I'll read that to you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Okay, so certain things about God are plain to sinful men because God has shown it to them. It's, it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. But these, these plain things are yet hidden in a certain way. And they're hidden because they're suppressed. They're, they're pushed down. And so fallen man, uh, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And if then fallen man does this with the truth about God that has been shown in the things that have been made in natural revelation, the question is, what does fallen man do when Jesus Christ is presented to them? Well, the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ is likewise suppressed in unrighteousness. The treasure in our parable is, is hidden in a field, and Matthew Henry likens the field in this parable to, to the gospel. So the, the field is likened to the gospel. Um, Matthew Henry likens it to the gospel. The gospel of God, the good news of reconciliation and forgiveness of sins, this is the open field in which the treasure lies. The person of Jesus Christ is located within the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on the cross. And the gospel is the only field in which this treasure is located. The gospel is the only field where the treasure of Christ may be found. There is no other field. But by God's mercy, this field is an open field. It's an open field. The man in the parable was able to find and get the treasure. And the field is still open, and the treasure is still there to be found and to be had. So the treasure of Christ is hidden from fallen man by the way of suppression of truth, and a consequence of that suppression of truth is really a failure to see the value of Christ. A consequence of the, of the suppression of the truth of Christ is a failure to see the value of Christ. And we, we, might, we might see this in, in, as we try to share. I, I don't know if you've ever witnessed to an unbeliever and you've tried, you try to communicate the, the worth and the value of Christ to them. There's a there's a look of indifference on their face. They, as excited as you are uh, about Christ, there's, there's just nothing coming through. In, in their eyes, Christ is of no value to them. They, they can't see the value. And really, it's not just professing unbelievers who can't see the value of Christ, but even those who fashion themselves as, as Christians. Some, some people who fashion themselves as, as Christians who are not true believers, they also cannot see the value of Christ. So how many churches are preaching a gospel where Christ himself is not the supreme treasure? 
How, how many churches in our nation are preaching a gospel where Christ himself is not the supreme treasure? The false gospel really promises more stuff, stuff that the man in the parable sells to get the real treasure. That false gospel is promising more stuff, and that's the kind of stuff that this guy in the parable sold off joyfully to get the, the true treasure. So those, those who listen gladly to a false gospel still see more value in stuff than they see in Christ himself. And it sort of reminds me of C.S. Lewis as he talks about, um, uh, I think it's children playing in the slums, making mud pies in the slums. Some of you may be familiar with that. But he says that, that unbelievers are like children playing in the slums, making mud pies. And they can't imagine what it would be like to have a holiday at sea or, or a vacation at sea. So they're, they're so into their mud pies that the idea of a vacation or a holiday at sea just doesn't even register to them. And in, in my thinking, the false gospel that's being preached by, by many churches in America is really promising more mud. It's, it's more mud for bigger mud pies. It's, it's, it, and so anyway, uh, that, that I think, the, the value of Christ, that leads us right into what I believe is the heart of this parable's teaching. So what, what comparable value does this treasure have then? Well, first I want to talk a little bit, uh, uh, you'll see why in a minute, but I want to talk about the difference between the word objective and subjective. Okay, so bear with me for a minute to I explain that, and you'll see why it'll, it'll tie in. So objective means something that applies in all times, in all places, universally. Even if no one in the whole world agrees to it, it it's, it's still just as true. So an example of that would be, Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Every person in the whole world could disagree with that statement, and the truth of that statement wouldn't change one, one bit. So that fact is objectively true. Well, what about the word subjective? Uh, well, a subjective statement really is dependent on the subject or the person making the statement. Right? A, a subjective statement is dependent on the subject or the person making the statement. So here's an example of that. I say that the best ice cream in the whole world is black cherry. Okay? You, uh, okay, Adam likes it, uh, that too. So this subjective statement is true for me because it applies to me. It's true. It's a true statement. It's subjectively true, but it's not objectively true because it, because it doesn't apply universally. Okay? So I, I am not the objective standard by which all ice cream ought to be measured. I, my opinion about ice cream, my favorite, my preference, that's, I, I'm not the ultimate standard of ice cream truth. So I hope you can see the difference between objective and subjective. Now then, uh, I, I should mention that we, we wrestle against this kind of subjectivity in our current culture. This subjective uh, opinion on worldview and subjective truth and relativism, we, we wrestle against that. And there's, there are fine ways of showing the folly of that, kind of, of that kind of thing, right? Truth, goodness, and beauty are not subject to human preference the way ice cream is subject to human preference. Do you see that? All right, so um, having said all of that, 
I want to talk about the subjective value of the hidden treasure in the field, right? I've, 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 just, I've just put the two together for you, and now I'm going to talk about the importance of the subjective value of the hidden treasure in the field. Um, I think it's necessary to do this. So let's first affirm what needs to be affirmed about the objective truth about, this, about the treasure. Objectively, Christ is all that the scriptures say that he is. His ultimate worth or value is, is infinite, okay? Objectively, Christ is all that the scriptures say that he is. His ultimate worth and value is infinite. But not all people view Christ or value Christ the same way subjectively. So again, let's consider our parable. The treasure in the field had a subjective or personal value to the man who found it. Okay, we might imagine another man in the parable who walked and saw the treasure and just walked right by it, right? The, 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 the saying comes to mind, one man's trash is another man's treasure, okay? That, that statement pretty much captures the idea of subjective value. You throw something out on the street and someone happily comes along and put, puts it in the back of their truck. You didn't want it and they sure wanted it. That's, that really illustrates subjective value nicely. So as we think about that, what, what are some of the things that are valued subjectively by, by people? Well, um, there would be too many to name, obviously. If I just ask what are, what are all the things that humans value subjectively, we, we'd be here for a long time naming them. So we're going to have to categorize them a little bit. But um, first, I'd say that the first category would be sinful things that are valued by mankind. Um, sinful things may be summed up in the lust of the flesh, uh, sinful sexual desires, the lust of the eyes, sinful material desires, and the pride of life, really a, a sinful view of self. But uh, the second category would be good things. Uh, humans also value subjectively good things. And we might, you know, subcategorize those. Uh, we value other people. We value material things like food and clothing and housing. We value ourselves. We value our physical and emotional uh, well-being. So as, as I list these categories and subcategories, I really want you to think about what it is that you value subjectively, right? What are the things that are valuable to, to you? I'll give you more time to think through that, but, 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 but think about it. Think about how much you value these things, and even think about the thing that you value most. What is it in life that, that you value most? So, uh, subjectively, personally, for you, how does, how does it all, how do all of the things that you value compare to the value of Christ in, in your life? It's, it's a subjective question that I'm asking you. I know objectively that Christ is of supreme value. And it doesn't matter if I say that or not, he, he, he is that objectively. But I'm asking you subjectively whether the things that you value in life, all of the things that you value in life, how does that stack up against the way you value Christ? I think that's the question that, that, we, that we need to ask ourselves. I think we have Paul answering this question for himself in uh, Philippians 3.8. He 
says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's, that's Paul's answer. If you ask Paul to trade in everything he had for his relationship with Christ, he would do it. He counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 14, 26. This is maybe a difficult passage for us to hear, but we, we want to read it and understand it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, quickly, the, the Reformation Bible uh, study Bible comments on this verse by telling us that, that hate in this passage means to, to love less. Okay? If, if you hear a teenage boy telling you how much he hates his family, we don't thereby conclude that he is, he's primed and ready to be a disciple of Christ, right? He means something different when he says, yeah, I hate my family than, than what's being talked about in, in this parable or in this passage, rather. So hate means to love less. Um, hate in this passage compares one level of love to, to another. So the love we have for our master is so great that all other loves pale in comparison compared to the love that we have for him. Subjectively, again, then, uh, for the man in his field, this kind of love for the treasure was certainly true. It was certainly true of this man who stumbled across this treasure in the field. The love of the treasure not only outweighed, but far outweighed the love that he had for everything else. What about you? Uh, what, what is it, then, that you value most? <clears throat> is, that, is that hard to answer? Is it, is it hard to answer that question? It, it, it might be hard for us to ask ourselves that question and answer that question, but ask a close friend or family member to help you. I, I mean it. Ask them to help you, and the chances are they already know what you value most. Everyone has something that they value most. Every human has something in life that they value most over all other, other things. And not only that, we tend to give, or we, we, we tend to and give attention to that which we value most. That, that would be an indicator as we're thinking through this. We, we tend to and give attention to that which we value most. We all have treasure and we all take time to tend to our treasure. So, in other words, the value that we have for our treasure results in action, okay? For, for the man in the parable, he took action when he found his treasure. He went. He went and sold all that he had, and not only that, in his joy, he sold all that he had. <laughs> Scripture isn't just telling you to value Christ over everything else. Scripture is telling you to joyfully value Christ over everything else. You know, and you know, true, true Christians hear this in a certain way. Again, this, this is pretty heavy when I talk about the value of Christ versus the value of your spouse and family and mother and father and children. This is, this is heavy, but I think true Christians hear this a certain way, sort of, sort of like this. Um, imagine a dad who spends all of his Saturday 
on his phone, checking his uh, social media, and not spending time in, with his children. Well, if you, if you sit that man down and you tell him in love that what he's doing, valuing his, his social media, whatever is going on there, over his children, he'll hear that from you a certain way. He, he's not going to argue with that. He's going to know, yeah, you're, you're right. I should value my kids more, more than this stuff. So I think when Christians hear that we ought to joyfully value Christ over everything else, over the aggregate total, the combined value of everything else, I think Christians hear that a certain way, and I think, that's, that's right. You're, you're not telling me anything that, that sounds foreign to me, any, any more than the man who's been checking his phone all Saturday is, is hearing anything that sounds foreign to him. He knows he ought to value his, his children and time with his children more than, than his social media stuff. All right, well, so it is with true, with true Christians. Though we may struggle, we do struggle hard with competing treasures, we know that the value of Christ far exceeds all others because our hearts have been changed. The desires of our hearts have been changed. We, um, when the man in the parable swapped, uh, swapped it all for his treasure, he, he saw it as a bargain, Okay? But when, when he swapped it all, he saw it for a bargain. He, he saw the exchange as a net gain. And so when we, when we heed the message to joyfully value Christ above all, remember, it, it's a good deal. It's a good deal for us, right? Usually look and say, hey, I found a deal. You, you jump at it, right? You see something as a net gain, something as a deal, and you say, I, I'm, I'm going to go for it. For, for me to trade this for that, that's, that's a steal. And so when we heed the message to joyfully value Christ above all else, it's, it's a good deal. It's a good deal for us. Well, how, how might we accomplish then the joyful valuing of Christ above all else? Right? How might we go about accomplishing this? Well, consider a couple of analogies and then we'll be, we'll be through. <clears throat> First, First, as, as an analogy, when it comes to the things of the world pressing in for our attention, right, consider a married man in a world full of other women, okay? So a married man in a, in a, in a world full of other women, we don't tell the man to, to close his eyes shut and keep them shut forever. That's, that's not what we're telling him. What, what we tell him to do is to joyfully and thankfully fill his eyes with his own wife, right? Look to his own treasure. That's it. When, when the world's treasures, the, the world's treasures are competing, what we say is, look to your own treasure, right? That's, what, that's how we would counsel a young man who's married saying, listen, I got a problem with my, with my eyes. I say, well, don't, don't poke your eyes out, but open your eyes and look. Be joyful and thankful about the wife whom God has given you. Look to your own treasure. That's how you'll keep yourself from, from the others. The second analogy is this. Consider um, a brilliant cut diamond, okay? Uh, brilliant cut, I have to look this up. Sorry, I'm not a diamond expert, but brilliant cut is kind of like a princess cut, right? It's the type of cut. It's the type of diamond cut. And a brilliant cut diamond has 58 facets or sides to it, okay? 
Brilliant cut diamond, 58 little, little, sides, little sides to it. So if you owned a big enough brilliant cut diamond, you probably don't, but if you did, you might be able to look upon each facet. You might be able to look at each side, each facet of the diamond. You might be able to look at it. And as you did, you would view a unique perspective. Every facet that you looked at would give you a unique perspective. Light would reflect uniquely from the facet in view, and also light would reflect uniquely from the peripheral facets, right? As you, as you held it up, you would be able to see different, different views, different facets from the, from the facet you're looking at and the peripheral facets. There would be a unique shining that you would be able to, to see. And so the question is, how many facets and peripheral brilliance can be examined in Christ? How many facets and peripheral, and how much peripheral brilliance um, can be examined in the Lord Jesus Christ? I think the biblical answer to that is that you, you can't count that high, right? It's, you can't get to the point where you've seen it all. You can't see the infinite glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's infinite. So, how might we joyfully value Christ over everything else? Look to him, look to him often. Joyfully and thankfully, fill your eyes with him. He is your treasure. Open his word and, and read of him. Let's end then with, uh, with the words of Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.